Next week, you're going to hear from Gordy and Bear Grover, and they also have an exciting ministry. This week, we're going to look at what is God doing to mobilize us right here. You don't always have to go around the world. There's a lot of ministry right here. The fields are white here. God wants workers to be sent out. How do we mobilize right here? That's the focus of Ezekiel chapter 36 as we look at verses 37 through 38. Now, you know I'm not going to just jump into a text without giving you some background. So you've got to know this. Now, listen, every one of you look at me for just a moment because you've got to get your minds in gear. You cannot come to church during a sermon and put your mind in neutral because what goes into your mind will float right back out and it will not have the opportunity to gain traction and transform and change. So here we go. You ready? Here's how you push the clutch of your mind in, put it in gear. Here's the background. God's about to speak to us through his word. You've got to start there. God is going to speak to you this morning through his word. It's infallible. It's sufficient, it's inerrant, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was God breathed from God through the Holy Spirit into men who wrote it. When you approach the Word of God, you always open it by putting the clutch of your mind into gear and saying, God, what are you about to say to me? That's how how you start. It's how you come to church ready to worship, ready to hear from God's Word through the sermon. What's he going to say to me to mobilize me to greater service for his glory? That's the question this morning that I'm going to ask you to frame. And as you read with me and as we study together Ezekiel 36, just these two little verses, let's answer that question specifically. What is God going to do to mobilize me personally in the midst of this church? It's about 600 years before Jesus was born, the time when this was written. And Israel was now two kingdoms, the northern and the southern, the northern ten tribes, the southern two, 120 or so years before Ezekiel wrote this. Assyria, the superpower of the world, came down and just conquered and demolished the northern tribe. Yet Judah, the southern tribe, was more faithful. And God was more enduring with them, patient with them. They had righteous men on the throne. And so God's promises endured. But then the southern kingdom went away from God, steeped into idolatry so badly that Ezekiel writes in chapter 14 that the Spirit of God, because of the wickedness and the elders of Israel, departed, got up and departed from the most holy of holies and left through that east gate, which we looked at just a little bit ago in Nehemiah, and departed and returned to the Father. The Spirit of God left the people of God. It was so bad. And so God raises up now Babylon. Assyria has been defeated by Babylon. Now Babylon's the superpower of the day. And Babylon comes and arrays her forces against the southern kingdom and demolishes the southern kingdom and takes the Jews, the cream of the crop, the best of the people, the artists, the artisans, the craftsmen, all of them, and deports them to Babylon. 
And so you get into the Psalms and you start to hear about how Israel is now in Babylon and their tormentors, their captors are saying mockingly, sing to us the songs of Jerusalem, sing to us the songs of your deliverer. And they said that they hung up their poplars on the tree and their hearts could not even sing. Now you know the context. Now you know out of what Ezekiel is writing because Ezekiel is sitting in Babylon. Ezekiel's a young man. Ezekiel's a priest in training. Ezekiel's heart is demolished and broken. God begins to speak to his people who are yet in captivity. Songs of deliverance, words of hope and prophecies of his future restoration. This is the background. But let me give you one more thing. You get to chapters 36 and you get to chapter 37 and all of a sudden you get to, now we don't like hearing this, I know, but you get to what theologians call dual prophecy fulfillment. Simply what that means is what we're going to see is God speaking through Ezekiel to Israel, but there's another fulfillment. He is speaking to Israel, but he's speaking to the church as well. There's two fulfillments. Primarily, preeminently, he's telling his people, I'm going to restore you. My spirit is going to come. I'm going to put a new nature in your hearts. I'm going to remove the miry or the, the hardened hearts, the hardened stone-like hearts that are against me. I'm going to remove that. My grace is going to come and I'm going to restore you back. Listen, that's future for Israel. That's not yet happened. The Jewish people do not yet recognize Jesus as their Messiah. This is why Bob and Emily have this ministry and chosen people. That's coming when God will restore his people, but that's not yet. But his spirit has fallen day of Pentecost upon the church. And you're here, brother and sister, filled with the spirit of God. You have the spirit of God that has put gifts into your life, supernatural enablements to do what God is wanting you to do. The spirit has come. And God's about to speak to us today through this passage. And here's what he says. I hope you have your Bibles open. Listen, if you've been coming to this church, you know you need your Bible. And by the way, for some of you, as Sandy is pulling out her iPhone, some of you have tablets and phones electronically. We've now opened up our Wi-Fi. If you want to get onto it, it's Nehemiah 328. And you can get on there. I don't care what form you're using. Just get into the Bible. Check what I'm saying. Be like the Bereans. Take it back to the Word of God. Here's what he says in chapter 36, verse 37. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel, and don't miss this, ask me to do for them. Now we read that. And a lot of us kind of probably gloss over that to get to the good part. But you've got to stop. Let's pause for a moment. Let's get our minds around this. Let's let it start to bounce around as we push the clutch in. And we've got our minds in gear. God's saying to us, I'm going to let you ask me for something. The maker of the universe, your creator, my creator, is saying to us, Here's what you can ask. I'm going to let you ask me. You don't need to make an appointment. 
You don't need to try to get in to see God in a week, a month, or a year because He's so busy. You can have access to God every moment of the day because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, come in to my presence, and here's what I'm giving you permission to ask. You know, we are told by God in Philippians chapter 4, to let your requests be made known to God. You have permission, brother and sister. Listen, if I can tell you anything that can anchor your soul towards the beginning of this sermon, it's this. You have a God that delights in you coming to Him with requests. You know how it is, moms and dads. When you have a child that just demands your time, over and over and over, constantly asking for this, constantly asking for that. And even the best of us can grow impatient. God never grows impatient. You can come to Him at all times, at all hours, and you can continue to pour out your heart to Him. And He says, here's what I want you to ask. How's that for God? Not only can you come to me, He says, but I'm even going to show you what you can pray for. Because if you pray according to the will of God, listen, the answer is always yes. It might not be in your time, but the answer is always yes, because it's in, it's in accordance with his heart. So if you want to learn to pray God's word, you want to learn to pray in his will, then simply pray the way he tells us to pray. And he's about to do that. And it's even more incredible. Listen, it's even more incredible. I gave you a little bit of a backdrop of the elders of Israel. They were idolatrous. They were wicked. You get to chapter 20 of Ezekiel. You can see it behind me. God says to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired by you. In other words, you do not have access to me. Your request will not reach my ears. You cannot ask me of anything. So you've got that in chapter 20, and then you've got this in chapter 36, and all of a sudden Ezekiel, who has heard God speak both messages, is his, can you imagine his mind all of a sudden resurging with hope? It looked pretty dark in the beginning of Ezekiel. And that's the state of reality, brother and sister. If you have been to the cross, you have clung to the cross, you have put your trust into the crucified Son of God, you have placed your faith in Him for your salvation, trusting that He has taken away your sins and given you eternal life. Listen, you can gain access to God through the living curtain of Jesus Christ. That's your right. That's your right as children of God. That's my right as a child of God. The prayers of the saved, I hope you see this. Do you know that your prayers, brothers and sisters, they rise like incense to the nostrils of God? Do you know that? See, what I'm trying to do this morning in mobilizing us right here, I'm trying to give you an audaciously bold, confident faith in your father. He says, your prayers rise to me. I delight in them. So come before me, pray. You've got access through my son. And here's what you can pray because I'm going to answer it. You know, it's not uncommon, by the way, in ancient times for kings to grant their favored servants a request. You get in Nehemiah's day. Do you remember King Artaxerxes? 
you know, asked Nehemiah, why is your heart troubled? And Nehemiah gives this audacious request. I want to go back. I want to go back to my father's city and I want to rebuild it. I mean, this is his, his cupbearer. This is King Artaxerxes' cupbearer, the most trusted man in his kingdom, third in line, king, prince, cupbearer. That's the authority chain. And yet, even despite such a bold request, the king granted it to him, I think likely because it was the Persian New Year. And the custom was when, it, when the New Year came, the king would bring his favorite servants and say, what can I do for you? Don't you remember that God has done this with Solomon? What is it that you want? Do you remember that uh, the king Ahasuerus did this with Esther up to half of my kingdom? Do you remember wicked King Herod doing this with the daughter of Herodias, unfortunately resulting in the beheading of John the Baptist? This was a custom. This was a cultural mannerism that a king in a time of favor will take his most trusted subjects and grant them what their heart requested. And so it's with this backdrop that God says, Ezekiel, tell Israel, tell the church which is coming that my mercy is flowing because of my son who died for them. My grace is ready to come. You can come to me. And by the way, here's what I want you to ask me because I can't wait to answer it. And here's the first. You ready? Look at your text. God says, ask me to increase the size of the church. Now, I know that sounds self-serving, right? Doesn't every pastor want a huge church, a fast-growing church? Isn't it only the pastors of fast-growing churches that get to speak at conferences? Listen, when I used to go to conferences, here's, here's what my mindset was. You want a sneak peek into my heart even years ago? I would go to conferences. I hated them. Because you would go and inevitably the question would come, how large is your youth group? And if my youth group was only 30 and that youth pastor's youth group was 90, then obviously he's much more successful as a pastor than I am and God has a lot more favor on his ministry than mine. That's the mindset that often pervades a pastor's mentality. I began to pray about that. I began to ask God, would you release me from that? I don't want to have my identity hooked into the size of our ministry to look to feel successful or not. And so God began to deliver that to me, but it began in a polarized swing. It swung all the way over to, you know what, then I guess numbers don't really matter. I don't care who's coming. So what if I've got six kids on a Sunday night? We're here to worship the Lord, and that's all that matters. Listen, neither position is correct. Both of them are false. Here's what God says in verse 37. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. Here it is. You ready? Here's how you pray, people of God, to increase their people like a flock. Have you ever boldly and audaciously prayed to God, increase my church. We've begun praying this. By the way, points two and three are going to bring some balance to maybe your anxious heart right now. But we've begun praying this prayer. 
as staff and as leaders of this church. And I want to encourage you what Charles Spurgeon once said, that great preacher in London, multiplication is a very ancient form of blessing. Here's what he explained. Look at Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them. Well, here's God's blessing. Here's the result. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Well, that might not be convincing for you, so let me go on. Psalm 107, by his blessing, they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. Even when God blesses, even their livestock would multiply and increase. Tim, this seems like prosperity theology. It's not. I'm going to bring it into balance. But look what Exodus 1 says. To the very people in Egypt, they're suffering in the harshest conditions of slavery. Wouldn't you think, moms and dads, that you'd be saying, I don't want children to have to grow up in this. I don't want to have kids. But despite the harshness of the conditions of slavery, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Listen, this is the right theology. All through the scriptures, when God is blessing, numbers increase. And when people, the people of God walk away from him, the numbers diminish. Over and over and over. When you read in Acts chapter 2 of the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon the early church, what was the result? You read, 3,000 people were added to the kingdom of God in one day. This is the blessing of God because they preached the word of God. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied, Acts chapter 9. Listen, take a study through the book of Acts. In the beginning of Acts, they are writing down numbers of how many people are getting saved. But so many people are getting saved, you get a third of the way through and you don't read about numbers anymore. You can't keep track of them. When the Lord is blessing his people, there is an increase often through multiplication. Listen, I can tell you, and I won't, but I can tell you the names of churches in the east end of the Lehigh Valley who are no longer preaching the centrality and the sufficiency of the word of God. I can tell you by name some of these churches. And there is no exception that they are diminishing and nearly closing their doors if they have not already done so. When people find out, this happened over the weekend. I did a wedding yesterday. When a lady came to this church from this area and found out that this church is growing and that we bought another church building to facilitate more growth. She said, you're kidding me. I don't know of any churches where that's happening. Listen, brother and sister, that that ought to hurt you. You ought to grieve with that. The blessing of God is multiplication. He wants his kingdom growing. Do you think that God is satisfied with how many people are in his kingdom today that he doesn't care about tomorrow's growth? He wants people coming to Christ. Like the flock for sacrifices, however, is what this increase looks at like. Let me balance what I'm saying. Here's what it is, verse 38. 
like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So first of all, here we go. God wants you and I, he wants us to ask God to increase the church. But listen, here's what he wants us to pray that that increase will look like. It will be with those who are committed to lay their lives on the altar and serve God. See, Jerusalem was a city alive with excitement during her appointed feast. I wish, I wish we could just somehow time travel. I just want to be there for one Passover. Passover launched their feast of unleavened bread. Just one time. I just want to taste it. I want to experience it. Because two million people would cram into the city of Jerusalem. Whole communities, whole towns would walk up the road. The Songs of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134, that's what they would sing as they would come into Jerusalem. It was a festive experience. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian who wrote for Rome, said this, that on the day of Passover, they sacrificed 250,000 sheep. Some would say that number's disputed. It doesn't matter. We can tell you from Song of Solomon or from uh, King Solomon that when they dedicated the temple, it's written into the Word of God. They sacrificed one hundred and twenty-two thousand sheep in a day. So you get to these words that we're about to read, that we did read, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. And what you need to remember, what you need to get in your mind, get yourself into the shoes of a Jewish hearer of this word is a picture, a mental picture of vast flocks of sheep making their way to the temple. All for one reason to die on that altar to serve their God. This is the image that's behind what God is saying to Israel. But there's another point. These sheep were destined for one purpose, right? The priests in the time of Jesus, do you remember two times, not just once, two times, Jesus drove the merchants out of the courts of the Gentiles. Here's what they would do. You had the court of Gentiles. It's the outermost court of the temple. It was vast. And there would be stalls set up. And in these stalls were sheep that had been raised, ironically, right outside the fields of Bethlehem. And these sheep were raised for one purpose. They were to be the best sheep. No spots, no blemish, no defects. They were raised to die. They were raised to be sacrificed. These are the sheep that are in mind. They are destined for one purpose, and that is to give their lives for God. Are you hearing it? Friends, are you hearing now what God is saying? Listen, ask me for an increase, but ask me for an increase of committed Christians. They're going to live this life, which is nothing but a twinkle of the eye in the scope of eternity. That are going to live this life with one purpose, Romans 12, 1, to lay their lives on the altar and serve their God. You want to ask me sometime, Tim, what's the most discouraging part of being a pastor? I think I could probably tell you without hesitation. It's seeing so many people who call Christ their Lord and Savior, 
mired in this world and utterly not living for the kingdom of God. I don't think there's anything more discouraging for me. And if you were to ask me a follow-up question, well, what would you rather have, a thousand, a church of a thousand members or a church of 80 faithful servants? I'm going to tell you without hesitation every single time, I'll take the 80 without doubt. Because I can guarantee you 80 people on the altar of God can do more than a thousand nominal Christians in a million years. This is what we are to ask. Listen, I'm inviting you to pray what the leadership of the church is praying. I'm inviting you to do what God has given us permission to do. Ask for an increase, not just at Cornerstone, in all the churches around the world, in all the Christ-exalting churches in the Lehigh Valley. Ask for an increase, but God, give us an increase of people that are ready to serve, that are going to give you their lives. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but the laborers are few, and that statistic has never changed. Never. It's as true today as it was in the days of our Lord and Savior. Therefore, here we are, pray earnestly, Ezekiel 36, 37, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, flocks for sacrifice into his harvest, and don't miss these three final words. Go your way. You know what that means? Don't think that when you climb on the altar that now you're going to be given 30 hours a week to church programs. You're looking at a pastor that utterly doesn't care about church programs. They are only a means to an end. It is about your jobs. It's about your schools and your colleges, your neighborhoods and your families. Go your way means that's where your mission field is. That's where it's white for harvest. And that's where God is going to be sending you. You don't need to only give your time at church. So a lot of us praying that God would increase his church with people who are fully committed to serving God. You know what? I'm going to tell you without equivocation, I believe some of you have been drawn here precisely for that reason. I have met so many of you that want nothing more than to serve. You really do recognize that this is a dot, this life, and you've got a line of continuum into eternity. This is your only chance to live on earth. And you don't want to waste it. Thank you. You don't know what encouragement you bring. But there's a third point of what this prayer is all about. First, we we are to pray confidently, God, increase the church. But Lord, increase your church with people ready to go on the altar, ready to serve. But listen, there's a third one. Why? So that the cities will be filled with worshipers. Look what he says. So, that the, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Are you familiar with the phrase scorched earth? It used to be a game. Scorched earth was a military policy that is still, unfortunately, despite the Geneva Convention's laws still happening today, it's always been happening, even in ancient warfare. Scorched earth is this, the, a, a conquering army, either when they're invading or retreating, decimates everything around them to cut off supplies, to emaciate the people, to prevent any possibility that the people that they conquered could uprise again. 
In the Old Testament, here's how they did it. In the Old Testament, they did it lots of ways. They would take the wells that had to be dug and they would put animal carcasses in them to poison the wells. If they had the quantity of salt available, they would salt the fields because then the acidity wouldn't allow crops to grow. They would take the walls, they would tear them down, they would burn the homes, anything burnable, they set it on fire. That's what they did at Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day when Babylon conquered them. This is scorched earth. And so you've got to get your mindset now the way that Ezekiel understands it. He's sitting in Babylon, a lush paradise. Meanwhile, back home in Jerusalem, it is a bleak backdrop of devastation. And God is saying to Israel, and I'm going to show you how he's saying it to us. He's saying to Israel, listen, I'm going to fill those waste cities and those ruined places with my people, flocks of people who are ready to serve me. You'll see the result of it in a minute. But here's what I'm going to do, Ezekiel, tell my people so they can have hope. He's saying the same thing to us. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Friends, listen, imagine. Use your divine imagination for a minute. You know what divine imagination is, right? It's imagining according to the word of God. Imagine waste cities around us filled with flocks of the righteous. Imagine going to school and every time you walk down the hallway, there's another Christian brother and sister who are on the altar ready to serve God in that mission field. Imagine going to work and you have so faithfully proclaimed the gospel that there are flocks of righteous that work along with you. Imagine in your neighborhood because you have brought the demonstration and the preaching of the gospel to your neighbors that there are houses after houses where people are getting saved and there are flocks of righteous righteous people right where you live. Can you imagine that? That's what we're to pray for. God, increase our people with people who are ready to lay themselves on the altar and serve. And I will take those people and I will fill the waste cities and I will fill the ruined places with them. But let me give you a brief timeout. Because this is so audacious, I honestly think most of us are saying to ourselves, well, it's an interesting point. But I don't really think it's going to happen. If that's what you're thinking, below the level maybe even of your consciousness, and that betrays your faith in the Word of God. God says, ask. This is why Wednesday evenings we're asking you, come down to 2nd Street and pray. This is why we have a group of women that have been praying for over 10 years for their kids and the kids in this church. We've got people praying all over the church. We're asking boldly and audaciously, God, increase this church, increase this church with people ready to serve and fill the waste places with them. You know, I've asked you to do some imagining this morning, right? I did ask you to imagine you're alive in Israel during one of these festivals, seeing these flocks 
coming through the sheep gate. That's my only allusion in Nehemiah. I had to fit that in. Coming through the sheep gate into the temple for sacrifice. I've asked you to imagine the waste cities and the waste places and the ruined places being filled with the righteous. But listen, let me ask you to imagine one more thing. Imagine late fall, you know, this church that we bought being filled with the righteous on Sunday morning. People who realize and recognize that coming to church is not the pinnacle or the only part of the Christian faith. It's the expression of fellowship to move us back out into these waste places with the gospel. So imagine Sunday morning, you know, you can imagine up here at 411 March Street exactly what you're experiencing this morning. But some of us also now have begun to attend the 2nd Street campus on Sunday mornings. And imagine it's a two-hour service and it seems so long when I say that. But imagine for the first hour, we're not content with anything but experiencing Christ through worship. Where we don't want static, one-direction preaching only. We want to participate. We want to talk. We want to discuss. We want to be with each other together. So imagine in that first one hour that there is time to worship and there's time to reflect. There's time to see on a video a couple in our church or a person in our church that God is doing amazing things through. And you get to see it. You get to hear what your family is doing. I mean, I wish you were here last night because a week ago we told you that Randy Fritz was laying on the side of the road in a ditch in his mo- on his motorcycle in Sioux City, Iowa. Fractured ribs, severely dislocated shoulder, fractured ankle. He's here last night. We, I have no idea how he got here. almost think the Lord sort of teleported. I don't know. All right, that was a joke. It's amazing. Wait till you hear, wait till you hear Randy Fritz's testimony. He's lying on a ditch. The first person that comes is a nurse. The second person that comes is a person he did not know but found out is in the same Christian motorcycle association that he, he's in. And all of a sudden, contacts began to flow where people right there in Iowa began to be able to bring to Randy the, need, the, 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 the needs that he had to meet or meeting the needs that he had. They got him back here. It's an amazing story. So you get to hear these things on Sunday morning because it's longer. You get to slow down. You get to, can I say this, luxuriate in the presence of God and his people. And then there's a part, a part of the service in the first hour because we're not content to not participate. So there are stations around the sanctuary and, and there's maybe a table over here that has the bread and the juice for communion. And you can go up and you can remember again and kill your pride looking at the cross that Jesus died for you. I mean, how can you, how can you think highly of yourself when you're looking at the cross and communion? It's the most humbling thing you could do, which is why we do it regularly. But you could do it every week there and worship Christ in that way. You can go to another station where there's a cross and maybe there's a sin in your life and you can't gain victory over it. You need help and you're tired. It's ruining your marriage. It's ruining your life. You write it down. You pin it to that cross and you know there's a prayer team that's going to be lifting that up all week. 
And maybe you just need that morning to pray with somebody. So there's a prayer station where you can go and there's people that are intercessors. They are just prayer warriors. They are gifted to intercede for you. They take your hand like a priest and they bring it to the hand of God and they close the grip through prayer and administer the God, the God's mercies and grace. And you go to that prayer station and you say, listen, I need prayer because of this. And they will pray with you right there. And if you have children, imagine ministry stations where there are gifted teachers that could take the word of God and bring it down into bite-sized nuggets for the mouth of their hearts so that they can eat and feed on the word of God and worship with their parents. And lots more possibilities. And then you get to the second hour, there's a break and there's a a time to just greet, come together and love. You've been in worship together and now you get to come in and there's going to be the, the word of God that was preached either by me or campus pastors the evening before or other preachers. And it's going to be up on the video and some of you are like, I don't think I could do that. Listen, I'm pretty sure that when you, if you experience this, you won't even know there's not a live speaker there. And you'll hear this sermon, the same one that this campus is going to hear, the same one I preached the night before. But afterwards, you're going to have the opportunity to say, listen, I don't know if I agree with what he said. I heard him say this. I can't believe it because just two weeks ago, somebody else said the same thing. You wouldn't believe what God is doing in my life. An opportunity to participate, an opportunity to testify of God's greatness in each other's lives. What greater power is there, Revelation says, than the very testimony of the saints to overcome Satan? And you get the opportunity to exercise it. You know what? I got to tell you, some of this is going to freak you out. This especially, because some of you are old. I mean, some of you are not as young. Sorry. Actually, some of you who are older are unbelievably technically capable. It's funny for me to watch because you know more than I do about electronics. But can you imagine Facebook? Can you imagine tweeting in the middle of a sermon? I want Pastor Matthew to explain what Tim just said. And there's a floor monitor and these saints can come up. And after that sermon's over, Matthew can say, you know what? Somebody in here has a question about one, the third point, that the waste cities will be filled. How will that look in Easton? And now Matthew has an opportunity to explain it. Tim has an opportunity to explain it. This is the power of social media. Let's leverage it for the kingdom of God. Let's be exciting. Let's participate and experience the presence of our Lord. I'm only whetting your appetite. I hope that draws you to a town hall meeting. We can explain and give you other things that we're wanting to do. But listen, let me leave you with this. There is one more point this morning from Ezekiel. And honestly, it's the most important. Here's what it is. Look at your text. Because without this, none of it is worth it. Look what God says, the end of verse 38. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Listen, that's glorifying language. That is in, I will increase my fame 
language. When I increase your people, listen, look at me. When I increase your people with those who are fully committed to serve me and I begin to fill the waste cities and the ruined places with them, then my fame will be greater. My glory will be right, will be brighter and they will know that I am the Lord. If we don't have the glory of God in mind at the very central part of everything that we do, it's not worth doing. Why aren't you amening that? It's all about the glory of God. You ready? Here's the most audacious thing I'm going to tell you this morning as I close. God tells you, brother and sister, and he tells me, pray and ask and watch what I'm going to do. Do you have that kind of faith? Some of you might be visiting from churches out of town. Do you have that kind of faith to bring back to your church? And in the end of it, God's name will be made great. Hope to see you at a town hall meeting. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for Ezekiel. This whole book, it's frightening. It's beautiful. It's deep. It's perplexing. But in the midst of all of that, are these two verses which could not be clearer. Lord, I pray that you took these words that I just preached and that you personally delivered them to the soul of every person here and inflamed their faith. Let us ask according to your word. Increase your church, your kingdom. Increase this church not with nominal Christians, not with those who are content to sit on the bench. Lord, increase this church with those who have said and will say, I'd want nothing more than to give you everything I have the very best because I'm one of those sheep destined for sacrifice. And Lord, take us, multiply us, fill the waste cities and the ruined places all around us. And bring your name great fame. Give us the faith to believe that. Bring us out to pray together for that. Help us to be asking you for these very things. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.